Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Thomas Thurston, and today I'm speaking with Nicholas Wood, who is the Cassius Marcellus Clay Postdoctoral Associate in Early American History at Yale University. He received his BA from Rutgers University, New Brunswick, his MA at Rutgers University, Camden, and his PhD from the University of Virginia. In the fall, he'll be taking a position at Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. Nick, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, so could you say a little about how you arrived at your current course of, of research? Sure. Um, yeah, my, my research, my dissertation research kind of evolved over time while I was at UVA. Uh, kind of the standard narrative of abolitionism is that these early, following the American Revolution, there's this kind of burst of anti-slavery sentiment and the creation of a number of groups such as the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. And they're influential in helping individual slaves gain their freedom through legal suits and things like that. Uh, but that politically, the abolitionists were not especially important or influential. And so I was, instead of looking at abolitionists, I wanted to look at political moderates who were kind of went back and forth between what we would consider supporting pro-slavery and anti-slavery policies based on kind of different uh, circumstances, economics, um, kind of security threats to the republic, things like that. But over time, I just kept going back to these different abolitionists that I hadn't expected to be studying, especially Quakers and what's known as the uh, Philadelphia Meeting for Sufferings. And right. it's, it's this kind of sort of an activist group of Quakers, which I'd never heard of before. And it turns out that they're much more active and influential than the existing scholarship had led me to believe. And so kind of from the beginning of my dissertation research, I was kind of saying that abolitionists didn't matter a whole lot. By the end, my, I was arguing the opposite, that these Quaker abolitionists were incredibly important, and that they worked much more closely with black allies than people had realized before. And kind of since uh, completing the PhD, I've kind of continued this research into these Quaker abolitionists in the kind of late colonial and early national periods. And uh, most of your research, or at least that I've heard uh, you discuss since you've been here, uh, focuses on Philadelphia, which is no surprise. That's mm -hmm. uh, kind of a hotbed of Quaker, Quaker activism. But, but what in particular makes uh, Philadelphia such uh, a pivotal uh, place for your studies? Yeah, I mean, one just starting point is that Pennsylvania has the largest Quaker population uh, going back to its founding in the 1680s. But uh, also... Pennsylvania becomes this uh, really important borderland uh, because it's on the border between the slaveholding South and what is slowly emerging the f as the free North. Uh, though it's important to remember that like throughout the 1790s, Pennsylvania is really surrounded on three sides by slave states because uh, New right. Jersey and New York are right, still yeah. slaveholding states until 1799 and 1804 when they very gradually begin to end slavery. Uh, but so it's this kind of Philadelphia support city, and uh, it's where a lot of uh, former slaves kind of voluntarily emigrate or 
fugitive slaves run to and try to search of greater opportunity, economic opportunity, and then they also find this really important support network from the existing population right. of free blacks and as well as the uh, Quaker and other white abolitionists. Right, there's a, a, a real uh, vital uh, African-American community uh, at that time in Philadelphia. Uh, could you say a little about that, who they are and, and how they form as a community and interact with the uh, uh, Quakers that uh, become their allies? Sure, uh, there's a number of free blacks in the beginning, but the number of free black people really increases beginning in the 1750s when Quakers begin freeing their slaves in large numbers and then others are able to just purchase their freedom or negotiate their freedom from their masters. And so by the time of the American Revolution, you have a substantial number of them. And, and uh, by, the, by 1794, you have two free black churches, uh, one run by uh, Richard Allen and then another by Absalom Jones. And these two churches kind of become the, kind of the center of the black community as well as the activist group. And, and uh, those two... Uh, Church leaders were also involved in the Free African Society, formed in 1787, and it's kind of one of the nation's first uh, black mutual aid groups. And they're also involved in anti-slavery organizing and and uh, ultimately lobbying and petitioning. Right, and um, they uh, so there uh, 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 there's a large influx of of African Americans uh, from the South into Philadelphia. Not all of them, though, are are, are runaways. Strictly speaking, many mm -hmm. are essentially are almost like refugees that are coming, uh, that are leaving. Uh, kind of, it, it's their legal right to leave. They've been freed, but they're uh, they're being forced out. Could you say something of that? Yeah, yeah. I write about this. I have a recent article on this subject about. In North Carolina especially, there's lots of Quakers there as well. North Carolina actually is the second largest number of Quakers at this time, and, and they also begin freeing their slaves. But unlike in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, it's illegal to manumit your slave. Or if you mm -hmm. do, they have to leave the uh, state or the province because it's actually a colonial law right. uh, within six months. And so especially during the American Revolution, these Quakers were freeing hundreds if not thousands of formerly enslaved people. And however, under North Carolina law, and this is to a degree true in Virginia as well, but, but more common in North Carolina, uh, people were allowed to just capture these former slaves, uh, take them to the county courts. They'd be re-enslaved and sold at auction to the highest bidder. And mm -hmm. North Carolina actually uses some of the proceeds of this to fund the state government during the war for independence. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, these, these black refugees, a lot of them end up escaping northward, sometimes with the support of local Quakers, often into Virginia, and then many of them ultimately make their way up to Pennsylvania. Uh, but more than 100 of them are re-enslaved and sold within North Carolina. And we don't know exactly how many end up in Philadelphia, but definitely scores, perhaps very likely, hundreds of them. And uh, uh, as they begin to organize uh, in Philadelphia, uh, what, what kind of forms do, uh, does their activism take? Yeah, so lots of them find a sense of community in the, uh, the local churches. Um, for example, one slave, former slave from North Carolina named Juper Gibson, he's, he's freed by a Quaker in North Carolina, and he ends up, uh, by 1796, he's listed as a trustee on, uh, for Richard Allen's Mother Bethel Church. And then 
1797, a number of these, four of these formerly enslaved people from North Carolina, they collaborate with the Philadelphia Meeting for Sufferings, the kind of the white Quaker anti-slavery group, in presenting what is the first petition to Congress from African Americans. And then in 1799, uh, two of those people who'd signed that, that first petition are actually marked their names. Only one of them was literate and could sign. The other just marked his name. Uh, they joined with a total of 71 free black people in 1799 to submit a second petition organized, uh, we believe, at Absalom Jones's church, but with the support of Richard Allen as well. Yeah. And that's presented to Congress in January of 1800, the, the second petition from African Americans. And both of these are, the main thing they're calling for is changes to the fugitive slave law, because these people, even though they've left North Carolina where they could be enslaved, right. now under the 1793 fugitive slave law, they can be captured in Philadelphia, taken back to North Carolina or wherever else they came from and re-enslaved there. So that's kind of the big issue they're putting, uh, they're complaining about. And they're, it's interesting, they're claiming kind of the right to petition, which is a First yeah. Amendment right. right. They, they call themselves a class of citizens. And there's some congressmen who actually defend them as dark-complexioned citizens. And it shows that kind of um, contemporary conceptions of citizenship and its kind of connection to race are, are much more kind of messy than scholars have often assumed. Right. That has that struck me when you uh, talked about that, that the uh, that these petitions uh, to the federal government are really uh, pretty amazing uh, for the mm -hmm. time. Um, now, in, uh, in addition to that, are they are they organizing against uh, state laws? For example, uh, the ones the laws that essentially uh, 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 call for the, the removal of emancipated uh, African-Americans from state boundaries. Are they, how are they kind of dealing with that, which must be a, a pretty uh, uh, fraught issue uh, on the ground yeah. there in Philadelphia? Yeah, we, we see that they're involved in petitioning the, the local government from the beginning, too. In, in 1790, they petitioned first just for a, a access to a potter's field uh, where they can have their own kind of um, burial ground for the African-American population. And then uh, I think the law you're referring to, the bill, is in 1813 in the midst of the uh, War of 1812. Uh, the Pennsylvania legislature, partly in, in response to pressure from kind of mer uh, slaveholders from Maryland who are upset about the number of fugitives escaping to Pennsylvania, they propose a law just banning all black immigration to the state um, right. unless you kind of could post a certain amount of money for it's kind of a bond for good behavior. Uh, and yes, the, the free black community does organize against this. Uh, James Fortin, who a sure. uh, black sailmaker who had served on a privateering vessel during the American Revolution. And he had not actually signed the 1799 petition, but he wrote a letter in support of it and was clearly involved in it uh, in some ways. Uh, but he, he publishes a series of newspaper essays that then get published in a pamphlet called a Letters from a... Uh, man of color um, mm -hmm. protesting this 1813 bill, and it, it does get defeated ultimately. And, and later in uh, 1821 and 1826, when the Pennsylvania legislature is discussing other fugitive slave bills, uh, the black activists uh, petition again. Richard Allen actually in 1826 travels to Harrisburg to kind of personally lobby legislators. Uh, unfortunately, he's too late by the time he gets there. Uh, but on the other hand, white abolitionists had also been lobbying on their behalf. And uh, as a result, the 1826 
fugitive slave law is actually more of a personal liberty law, right. protecting uh, free black and uh, alleged fugitives. You know, again, when I think about, uh, uh, about this period, uh, the idea of, of the white abolitionist uh, is always sort of a benevolent society that is uh, interested in uh, in uplift that might fund a school or help establish a church. But there's a kind of a, uh, an arm's length, somewhat patronizing air about it. Yet uh, your research kind of paints a more nuanced uh, picture of the, the relationship between these uh, white and black uh, abolitionists. Yeah, this was one of the most surprising things that I'd found because traditionally historians have always known about these 1797 and the 1799 petition, but it always been assumed that they were done purely by the black community because the white abolitionists at the time were basically too conservative to support such a thing. Uh, white abolitionists might support a freedom suit for an individual, but they didn't support black intervention in politics right. was the common wisdom. Uh, but then I ultimately found rough drafts of both of these petitions uh, produced by Quaker members of the Philadelphia Meeting for Sufferings. And, in, and it seems that it's this group, which, which really has not received much attention from scholars, like specialists in Quaker history have looked at it. Um, but even then, they've rarely used the, uh, their miscellaneous papers. Like people have looked at their formal mini meeting minutes, but, but it's their miscellaneous papers and personal papers is where I found these rough drafts. And, uh, and yeah, so it turns out that this, this group, the Meeting for Sufferings, yeah. was much more involved than kind of the more famous groups such as the Pennsylvania Abolition Society when it comes to black political activism. And also, we, we do generally think of kind of uh, aboli white abolitionists as being kind of more upper class. Right, right. Paternalistic. The kind of leading member in, on, in support of black uh, collaborations with black activists was this guy named John Parrish. And he's one of the poorer Quakers. Uh, he's born in 1729. He's uh, is orphaned at age 16 because apprenticed as a um, brick layer, which is not like mm -hmm. a real, I mean, not a high-class job. Not the pathway to riches. No. And, uh, but ultimately, he becomes uh, really, a really strongly committed abolitionist, also a defender of uh, uh, the rights of Native Americans, kind of travels and oversees a number of peace treaty negotiations with Native Americans. Uh, but, but he's the one, and ultimately, he switches from brick making to brush making when he's in his 60s, uh, which is in the 1780s. And and 90s, and he he works with this black man named Cato Collins, who was mm -hmm. a former slave, who'd been freed at age 12, and it seems that the two of them they're kind of this uh, kind of the, they're like the go-betweens between the black and white branches of the abolitionist movement. And again, he's someone that uh, he's not a wealthy man. Parish like he has letters like kind of asking other Quakers for money so that he can borrow so that he can buy a winter coat. Like he's uh -huh, like that right. level of yeah. <laughs> impoverished at times. Uh, but it seems that he also, because of that, he, he has much more frequent face-to-face -face interactions with other black activists. And one of the frustrating things is that we have so few letters between him and other black activists. We have a couple with Cato Collins, a few with people like Kwamone Clarkson, who's a black school teacher. Mm -hmm. But these letters, like the ones from Kwamone Clarkson, clearly they refer to other black leaders like William Gray and just make it obvious that Parrish and these other people just knew each other well from daily face-to-face -face interactions. It's just that 
they didn't keep formal minutes when they're collaborating together the way like the formal abolition society or the meeting for sufferings did. Um, could you say a little about the the religious nature of uh, this activism? It's you know first of all, what is it about Quakerism at this moment in the history of Quakerism that leads uh, to uh, an abolitionist kind of upwelling? And also, uh, you know, it's uh, they're working with with very religious minded African Americans as well, but they're uh, they're with Mother Bethel, and they're you know they're uh, they're mo- they're not uh, Quakers. They're not being brought mm-hmm. into the fold. Uh, could you just say a little about the dynamics of that relationship? Sure. Um, yeah, the American Revolution inspired a number of white people from different white uh, or different religious backgrounds to kind of support anti-slavery. Though it's the Quakers who were the most committed. And for all the kind of the abolitionist leadership among the Quakers, they had all turned against slavery basically a generation before the American Revolution. For them, the key moment uh, was in the 1750s. Uh, People like John Woolman and Anthony Benezet were finally gaining kind of influence by 1754. And then when you have the outbreak of the French and Indian War, Kind of Quaker reformers point to that as evidence of divine retribution for many sins, especially slavery. And that's when Quakers uh, in the larger kind of Delaware Valley region embrace anti-slavery as a collective group. Sure. And in 1758, they forbid members from selling or buying slaves, and they also encourage them to begin educating them uh, religious instruction and just basic education and setting them at liberty. And they begin visiting Quakers, slaveholders who don't, and kind of pressuring them to do so. Uh, Though it's not until 1776 that they make it a formal rule that you'll be expelled if you don't free your slaves. And because of that kind of coincidence of 1776 being the year of the Declaration, we often kind of conflate Quaker anti-slavery as kind of growing up with the American Revolution, but but kind of the key moments were all before the Mm. Revolution. And that's why many of these leaders, like John Parrish, he's not a young man at this time. He's when he's 75 years old, like in 1804, he's still like traveling to Washington D.C. lobbying on behalf of these people. Um, but as for uh, why why black people themselves generally didn't join the Society of Friends or Quakers, uh, it's a complicated issue. Uh, there definitely was prejudice within among Quakers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to exaggerate kind of how egalitarian they are. It's not until 1796 that there's the kind of the debate, the internal debate is finally set, settled that yes, uh, the Society of Friends is open to people of all nations and all colors, as they mm-hmm. say. Uh, but the, the main thing is it seems that most black people, uh, like most white people, just chose not to become Quakers because they just didn't like the kind of the style of worship. Right. And uh, and instead they kind of chose their own manner of expressing themselves and having their own independent uh, churches. Uh, though, again, those did often work very closely with uh, with Quaker allies for right. things like fundraising and issues like that. Now, we've you know, most of our conversation has been about uh, Philadelphia and the kind of surrounding area. Uh, are similar uh events going on in other metropolitan er- areas of the of the country? Yeah, so the different regions have their own version of the Philadelphia Meeting for Sufferings. So uh-huh. in, in North Carolina, it's called the North Carolina Standing Committee. And they're the people pressing local Quakers to free their slaves and also 
uh, guarding against the reenslavement. They actually hire uh, lawyers to challenge the reenslavement in court. Mm-hmm. It goes up to the state Supreme Court. Uh, they, they win some victories, but then the legislature basically nullifies the judicial re, uh, ruling. Um, and they, the, so the North Carolina Standing Committee, they collaborate with the Virginia Meeting for Sufferings in kind of helping to transport some uh, former slaves from North Carolina to Virginia and then also engaged in some court cases in Virginia protecting former slaves from reenslavement. And then up in uh, New York and New England, you also have similar uh, meetings for sufferings. And it's, it's these groups that are also organizing kind of or collaborating to organize uh, petition drives like in 1794, the one that leads to the, um, uh, the passage of a federal law against participation in parts of the foreign slave trade. But it seems that in terms of supporting black uh, political activism, it's kind of limited to Philadelphia. Uh, and when these Qua- Quakers from Philadelphia are writing letters to their kind of the brethren in North Carolina, they don't mention any of this. Uh, and so they don't mention their own activism. That correct. Like oh. they, they, in rough drafts of letters, they do. They say, huh. in the meantime, uh, four blacks from your state have been encouraged by some friends to petition the government, but that's all X'd out. And again, the, these are the types of like miscellaneous papers yeah. that previous historians just hadn't looked at, but it's really just like smoking gun evidence of their collaborations. But for whatever reason, the, the final copies that are in the, uh, the archives of the North Carolina Quakers, they don't have any reference to the Philadelphia Quakers' involvement in supporting those petitions. Huh. And uh, now it's possible that they just didn't trust such things to be in the mail and right. maybe like in face-to-face discussions they did tell them. Um, I don't know. Uh-huh. But, uh, but it seems that it's the Philadelphia Quakers that are definitely taking the lead in this and they kind of realize how radical it is right. and want to kind of cover it up. Are they, or, yeah, to risking degree, offending maybe the sensibilities of their North Carolina yeah. brethren are not quite. Yeah, could be. Now, you'd mentioned earlier that Parrish, by the uh, beginning of the 19th century, is an old man. Uh, is, is, the new gener- is there a new generation of Quakers that are coming along and kind of standing in the shoes of, of, the, of this kind of revolutionary era. Yeah, there is a new generation of Quaker abolitionists, but in general, they're not as committed. And uh, and that's one of the kind of the, the things we see happening. Like traditionally, um, historians also often talk about kind of this burst of anti-slavery around the era of the American Revolution. And then they view its kind of decline to uh, both kind of the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s right. kind of makes people more fearful. And then the abolition of the slave trade to America in right. 1808, uh, they often kind of uh, say that, well, contemporaries assume that by cutting off the slave trade, they kind of done enough and slavery would just yeah. wither away. And mm-hmm. thus the abolitionist movement kind of fizzles out to a degree. And uh, they're, they're correct that it does kind of fizzle out to a degree, but it's, it's kind of a coincidental moment because it's right around then when all the leaders of the, the Philadelphia Meeting for Sufferings, all the most active abolitionists, die off basically hmm. between 1806 and 1809. John Parrish, James Pemberton, uh, Nicholas Wall, and all these people that had been involved in these petitions as well as like the Negro School as they called it, right. which was a Quaker-run school for former slaves and free black people. They all kind of die off. And again, the, these were old men who'd been inspired by the kind of the 
in the 1750s in the French and Indian War, and the next generation simply isn't as radical. Uh, John Parrish's uh, nephew, Dr. Joseph Parrish, he ultimately becomes president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. And, uh, and in the 1830s, he does uh, support black citizenship or mm -hmm. the defense of black suffrage because theoretically black Pennsylvanians could vote until 1838. And he writes a letter defending that. But he's not working at the same level as his, as his uncle was, and uh, very few people are. Uh, though interestingly, some of the kind of the transitional figures that we do see in what we often call kind of the difference between like the gradualist right. abolitionist era and the later immediatist uh, era, or the first wave and the second wave of abolitionists, whatever you want to call them, people like um, Isaac T. Hopper, he's someone that he's younger than people like Parrish, but he is involved in the Philadelphia Meeting for Sufferings and the Pennsylvania Abolition Society uh -huh. in the 1790s and protecting black people from kidnapping. And then in the 1830s, he is still alive. Now he's an old man, but he's still active the way Parrish was active when he was an older man. And uh, so, he, so people like that are kind of a link between these movements. Uh, Benjamin Lundy, who yeah. was William Lloyd Garrison's mentor, he had been involved in the uh, the Baltimore meeting for suffering, so doing similar things. Uh, so there definitely are some kind of generational continuities, but in general, it's just not the same level of uh, at least interracial activism support for cooperation at the political level with black people uh, as there had been earlier. Though they still continue the legal work on behalf of African Americans, things like that, but yeah. but not as much political collaboration. And uh, have you found out much about the next generation of African American abolitionists and and, and what paths they're taking? Uh, so I mentioned like James Fortin earlier. Right. He's again someone that's kind of like in goes in between both groups, and so he'll he'll or both eras because he will meet with like uh, William Lloyd Garrison and actually help fund the Liberator. And uh, the, the various black churches uh, in Philadelphia and elsewhere, they also continue to be really important kind of uh, places for where organizing that, that can then ultimately support the abolitionist movement. So things like that. Um, Cato Collins, who I mentioned, uh, who worked with John Parrish, he remains very active in Absalom Jones's church, actually kind of acts as a lay reader after Jones uh, dies in 1817. And he clearly is also uh, politically active as well. Like, uh, and white racists in Philadelphia hate him. They actually like call him out by name and make fun of him in the newspapers in the 1830s. And uh, his uh, his daughter is a school teacher, and his son-in-law, uh, John Bowers, he's uh, one of the early leaders of the Black Convention movement beginning uh -huh. in in the 1830s. So there definitely are these generational ties of people who'd been active in the 1790s, remain active, and then uh, their children and their their um, kind of their their relatives remain so as right. well. And in, in when we see the kind of the resurgence of abolitionism in the 1830s and 40s. Right, and this you know often we we make this distinction between this older uh, abolitionism and Garrisonianism, and uh, uh, which is. Uh, seen as this is this distinct break. It's uh, it's uh, emancipatory. Uh, it, there's no uh, there's no uh, long term kind of uh, set of deadlines for emancipation. Mm -hmm. It has to be immediate. Uh, 
so there's, you know, this is a distinction that you find not quite not quite as hard-edged as, uh, as uh, people make it out to be. Yeah, just a lot of the things that we see in the 1790s are really uh, important precedents for things that we assume began in the 1830s, uh, the petitions being a, a prime mm-hmm. example of this, like actual interracial activism at the level of national politics, uh, which is just something we don't assume that the so-called gradualist abolitionists right. would have supported. And... Um, and it's also it's it's interesting to see that it's Philadelphia, in fact, that uh, that is uh, the seedbed in a way for mm-hmm. this uh, this uh, new uh, abolitionist movement in the 1830s. You mentioned Fort and his mm-hmm. uh, funding. Uh, Garrison is at one of the uh, colored conventions, I think, in yeah. Philadelphia when uh, it's one of his moments where he's uh, talking about inter- interracial cooperation. Mm-hmm. As if it's a new thing, yeah. Uh, and so it's really fascinating to see uh, how we've taken that as 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 the the story of abolitionism. Yeah, and I mean, if if you look at Garrison's uh, his book Thoughts on African Colonization, he he gives credit to the African Americans who helped change his mind and. Uh, lead him to oppose the American Colonization Society, and he cites like it actually reprints documents from uh, Pennsylvania black people from 1817 mm-hmm. protesting the American Colonization Society, which wanted to kind of send free black people kind of back to Africa, back in quotation marks, because most of them weren't actually born there. Um, and uh, and yeah, and those those black people who were turning against colonization in uh, 1817, many of them had were the same people that had been cooperating kind of with interracial activism in the 1790s. And in the 1790s, interestingly, some of them had considered colonization. Uh, and John Parrish had actually helped them draft another uh, different petition supporting the creation of a colony like Sierra Leone had, uh, the British colony. Um, but ultimately, they, for various reasons that are Unfortunately, we don't have enough evidence right. to know exactly. They abandoned that idea, and uh, and that that would have been in the mid 1790s. And so it's interesting that kind of there had been this moment of interracial interest in colonization among Quakers and Black people in Philadelphia. Then they abandoned it, and instead those same groups worked together in support of these petitions that are kind of laying claim to more or less a level of birthright citizenship, right. claiming we live here, we have a a right to call on Congress as the guardians of our liberties. And so kind of rejecting colonization, something and claiming connection to the nation, again, something that we generally associate more with Garrison in the later period. Yeah, and that's in fact one of the things that I found uh, so interesting about your work is, um, is it it Philadelphia being the kind of place it is with a strong uh, African American community and and allies in the Quaker community, it becomes a place where you you can uh, as a, uh, an activist there you can imagine uh, a place for you in uh, in the United States uh, mm-hmm. that may have been very different for people in other parts of the country. Yeah, like in Rhode Island, it does seem that the black activists there, their white allies were generally more supportive of colonization. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it may have been just that, yeah, black people are such a small proportion of the population in New England, I think around 2% on average, 
that it was easier for the white people to just kind of envision the end of slavery also being accompanied by the end of the black presence. And, uh, and so people up there were kind of more encouraging uh, the local former slaves to kind of consider emigration to Africa. Uh, but ultimately, that doesn't work out there either. Uh, Nick, it's been great talking to you. It's been great getting to know you as you've been here for your uh, two-year fellowship working, I should say, on, on this book, Before Garrison, Anti-Slavery and Politics in the New Nation. That's the working title. Uh, before we leave, could you uh, recommend a few sources that people interested in this subject might want to take a look at. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me again. But uh, kind of the, the classic work on kind of the uh, gradualists and the immediatists would be uh, Richard Newman's The Transformation of American Abolitionism and uh, kind of the new most comprehensive book on kind of the, the larger abolitionist movement is Manisha Sinha's The Slave's sure. Cause. And then uh, just a, a book that covers the period after my time period uh, that I think is really good is Corey Brooks's new book, uh, Liberty Power, which is set in the beginning of the second half of the 1830s, but focusing on political abolitionists. And I like it because he's really showing the political influence of abolitionists um, in a way that uh, kind of hasn't been hasn't been done as well before, and mm -hmm. it's similar to what I'm trying to do from my period, showing how, how these people were actually not simply petitioning, but actually influencing politics. And so I think that's a really great recent book. Well, it's been uh, really interesting having you here, and I think the work you're doing is, is overturning some uh, received notions of this period, and I find that so exciting. I'm looking forward to the book and to hearing more from you in the future. Thanks so much mm -hmm. for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Additional support is provided by the Rabina Foundation. Each episode is produced by Thomas Thurston and Daniel Vera with additional production support by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the Gilda Lehrman Center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.